There's a running joke amongst the faithful fans of this podcast. If you're going to be a guest on This Is Van Color, be prepared to talk shit. Or cry. Preferably both. This space is a chaise lounge, a confessional, a soapbox, and a bar stool, often all within the same hour. Sometimes, we unpack the big, messy ideas to parse through the culture. Occasionally, we follow our emotional curiosity to vulnerable and blessedly uncomfortable revelations. Other times, we just laugh our asses off at the absurdity and serendipity of life in this big, bad city. For the rider dies, to the first-time listeners, if none of that resonates with you, then hopefully, at the very least, each episode arms you with a piece of trivia that you can retell to strangers to pass yourself off as interesting. Whether accompanying you through your commute, your weekend chores, your breath of fresh air, or your physical conditioning, please feel welcome to eavesdrop with buoyant hearts and wetted minds. Whatever compelled you to press play, cheers Metro Vancouver! as we celebrate episode 100 of Vancouver's Bonafide Culture and Politics Podcast. With your host, Mo Amir, this is Van Color. Van Color. Van Color. We're at the West Coast. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, we celebrate episode 100. We made it, and it's because of you. As always, subscribe, rate, and review. Follow me on Twitter at Van Color. Tell your friends, tell your mom, tell your priest, tell your local representative. We are not playing around anymore. This is Vancouver's Bonafide Culture and Politics Podcast. Not because I say so, but because of you listening right now, I would have never taken it this far if it wasn't for you. I am humbled by your listening ears and your generous hearts, so sincerely, thank you. And shout out to my audio engineer, Spencer Ratzleff, here at On The Mic Studio, home of this podcast. This is Van Color, episode 100, and who better to join us than my best bro, making his third appearance on the podcast. You may remember him from episode 30 in a jolting critique of China-Canada diplomatic relations and a fiery appeal for a public inquiry into money laundering, which we did indeed get here in BC in the Cullen Commission. Of course, he topped that in an unapologetic two-hour episode last year, episode 60, pulling no punch and putting the professional political establishment in this country on notice, it still plays as one of the finest episodes of this podcast. If you haven't heard it, you need to go back and listen to it after this. He needs no introduction. He's back, baby. He is the mayor of Port Coquitlam. He is Mayor Brad West. Brad! Mo! How are you? I'm awesome, man. How are you? Good. It's so nice to see you. It's really good to see you. To actually see you. Right? In, in person. I'm, at a distance. Yes. We're, we're all good. We're safe. We're safe, but uh, awesome to see you in person. And congratulations. Thank I mean, you. It, it, to me, it's amazing to be able to watch uh, you make waves. <laughs> and w- what a year it's been for This Is Van Color and, and everything that you've been doing. Thank you so much. You've, you've been a part of that journey as well, so I appreciate you being here. I didn't want anyone else except for you. 
That's why we got some beers out. We do. Ready to do this. Cheers. You've used this platform to air a few grievances, a few beefs, perhaps. <laughs> a little Seinfeld action. <laughs> I'm going to swerve the audience right off the bat. I have a grievance with you. Uh-oh. So 2019, you and I both have banner years. This podcast starts to find its groove. You're in the media like every week, if not every day, fighting for regular people on a bunch of different issues. I start making a few more media appearances here and there. I got a mention here in the newspaper. And then we end 2019 on episode 60. And as I said at the top, it was an episode, and I know some people are going to say this is a hyperbole, but I think it was a revelation in the sense that we accomplished something special. The idea that a mayor of a Metro Vancouver suburb and some basic bro podcaster were going to talk for two hours with less than 10,000 Twitter followers to their name and somehow make this compelling conversation. I think that was something spectacular. And it was during the holidays and literally everyone from Ed the Sock to Ian Young to Max Fawcett are telling people to stop what they're doing and to listen to this two hours, which is an enormous ask. And you and I both know it spread far and wide. So when Aaron O'Toole listens to a two-hour local Vancouver podcast, you know you've rattled some cages. So anyways, I felt like you and I were on parallel trajectories, right? And I felt like we had this tacit agreement that we weren't here to take part we were here to take over <laughs> and we were going to change the culture by implanting ourselves in the public consciousness. Now, 2020, my year so far, editorialist at CKNW, Vancouver is awesome. I've had a multitude of mainstream media mentions, big feature in the Vancouver Sun, huge mention in the six o'clock news. I'm sitting on panels with actual professional journalists and these political comms people that we like to shit on. <laughs> And I pretty much hand-delivered BC the biggest scandal of the provincial election. I'm out here swinging, man, and I'm looking around. Where's Brad? We had this deal. So how do you go from the most wanted soundbite in local BC news in 2019 to basically underground in 2020? Did you get yourself in trouble? You're, you're, you're making me feel really bad about myself. I thought I was doing okay. I told you it was a swerve. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been a very busy year. Um, and I've been very much focused, uh, first and foremost, on uh, my family. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as I've spoken about before, I have a, a young son. And uh, he's three years old now. And uh, he's the most important person in my life. Sure. And um I have made a deliberate choice to make sure that I'm there for important things um, in his life that I want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think that that's really important for me to be able to do, to, um, to put family first. Um, that's the way I was raised. Um, I'm the beneficiary of, uh, of a mom who always put family first, put her kids first, even when I'm sure there were other things that she might have wanted to be able to do or uh, partake in. Um, so that's 
first and foremost. And uh, did you feel like in 2019 you were taken away from that a bit, or maybe uh, 2019 was distracted? a really, a really busy year? Yeah. Um, and you know, a, a lot of uh, being at home and having to jump on the phone to you know do an interview, or you mm-hmm. know, a lot of uh, juggling uh, with my wife to be able to accommodate certain things. So, um, so I think certainly a, a conscious deliberate choice to make sure that uh, always making time for for family uh, and the moments that I would never give up for the world. Sure. Um, and then you're also, making me feel bad. I can't well, give you a hard you, time you know for what? that. You, you should feel bad. <laughs> quite frankly, <laughs> Mo Amir, you should feel bad. Um, and then, look, um, you know, I know a lot of people, you know, the kind of I guess there's like the COVID fatigue of using COVID as a as a reason sure, why certain yeah. things are happening. But no, it's um, true. when when that hit, um, you know, it was all hands on deck at the the city. Um, my mm. my second biggest priority after my family is serving the people of Port Coquitlam as their mayor. Yeah, uh, and that has taken uh, uh, you know, uh, and it was already a, a significant. Um, commitment obviously and, and something I you know eat sleep and breathe mm-hmm. um, and it got taken up even another level yeah after COVID of course um, and it was completely unchartered territory for us um, like a lot of people and so a huge amount of time focused on making sure the, the city was in the position to be able to weather the storm. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of decisions that impacted a lot of people, not only the people who live in Port Coquitlam, but the people who work for our city as well, mm-hmm. uh, who are, you know, passionate and dedicated public servants um, who do the important work that make things happen in our city. And so um, there was a lot at stake in a number of those decisions. And so, um, you know, um, did it mean that I didn't have my week, weekly or daily radio uh, uh, clip. Yeah, but that's fine. You know what? I yeah. got I got a lot of time ahead of me. Um, not shy about expressing my uh, points of view. And uh, so you weren't you know, told to tone it down, is what I'm getting. No, at. No, no, no one tapped no, you no, on the no. shoulder. I, I, no, I don't think there's a person other than my <laughs> wife. I don't think there's. I don't know that there's a person out there who. Maybe she did. I don't know. That's what no, I'm asking. No, <laughs> no. I yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that you didn't get in any trouble. You know who should have gotten some trouble though? Who's that? Joyce Murray. <laughs> <laughs> I want to fill people in on this if they don't know the story. So Joyce Murray is the Liberal MP for Vancouver Quadra and the Minister of Digital Governance. And I think that bears emphasis, the Minister of Digital Governance. She has a WeChat channel, and WeChat is a messaging social media payment app that's owned by a Chinese multinational technology company. And the U.S. Department of Justice has actually tried to ban it citing significant threats to national security. So in May, Joyce Murray's WeChat channel was found to be crowdsourcing money for a lawsuit against global news journalist, our friend, Sam Cooper. Now, I want to be clear, Joyce Murray may may have had nothing to do with this. Doesn't seem like there's any evidence to say so. But as the digital governance minister, she had a channel that was crowdsourcing money to undermine one of Canada's best 
journalists. I don't have a WeChat, but this podcast has a Facebook page. And if suddenly that Facebook page was being used to coordinate funds for, let's say, terrorism, I can assure you as Muhammad Amir, I would be in big trouble. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, there's a difference between, you know, terrorism and funding money for a lawsuit. But there's an uproar for a few days. The prime minister expressed outrage. And then the story disappeared. No apology from Minister Murray. And the group behind this crowdsourcing to sue Sam Cooper and Global is called the Maple Leafs Anti-Racism Actions Association, and they released a statement saying, Minister Joyce Murray's actions demonstrated her deep concern about Mr. Cooper's unbalanced article, and her feeling is shared by all of us at MLARA. So here's my question to you. You follow this stuff. How does everyone walk away clean from this incident? Yeah, you know, there's so many examples of of that where you get a sort of an intense period of of focus and concern. And then, you know, I don't know if it's just the way we're built these days, it's the media (laughs) environment, but then something else comes along and, and, you know, and it's it's forgotten. And I think that uh, a lot of politicians actually count on that. Uh, and, hmm. you know, there's this sort of view that, you know, on a lot of issues, if there's a, a challenge, you get yourself in trouble or whatever, you know, just kind of plow through. Right. Uh, and, and people will forget it and, and carry on and, and there will be no consequence. You know, in, in that particular situation that you mentioned and in others, one of the things that just bugs the hell out of me is this professing of ignorance. <laughs> oh, I had no idea. You know, it, like it, all these, you have different politicians and elected officials and political actors and, you know, and strategists and all, you know, all the kind of hangers on <laughs> of a political party. And when it suits them, they want to play footsies with all of these different groups who, uh, you know, have very uh, nefarious aims in terms of uh, trying to expand the influence of a uh, of a foreign government in, in our democracy. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's like you invite them into the inner circle, you squeeze them for all they're worth, you play footsies with them, and the first time you get, you know, called out or it comes public say, oh, I had no idea. I don't know who these people are. It's, you know, I don't, I don't administer the WeChat. And, oh, you know, it, it was some poor, you know, uh, hapless, you know, 20-year-old volunteer who, who was doing it on my behalf. Like, I mean, just that's such a, a tired excuse that I hear yeah. so often, this, this refusal to take responsibility, uh, you know, e- even though you're, you're, you're dabbling in in things that you ought to know are problematic, yeah. and and I'm just not into people pretending they don't know anymore. You can't you can't pretend you don't know uh, about the links between um, money money laundering and organized mm-hmm. crime. You can't pretend you don't know about the Vancouver model and the people who are involved in it. And, oh, I got my photo taken with that person. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, sorry. Oh, uh, you know, you can't pretend you don't know that the government of China has a very well-coordinated and active campaign to expand their influence 
in our decision-making, in our politics. You just can't pretend you don't know that anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think the public buys these excuses. Yeah. Uh, and yet, anytime someone gets caught, that's the first line of defense. Oh, oh, I didn't know. <laughs> I, I, I profess ignorance or, you know. I guess in this case, the optics are just so bad. I don't know what digital governance means. I assume it has something to do with the internet. <laughs> but the fact that this was happening in her digital channels mm-hmm. it makes it all the weirder, right? And, you know, even if there was some 20-year-old intern who didn't know how WeChat works or what was going on in there, still begs the question why you're on WeChat in the first place, especially as a non-Chinese language speaker. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, as far as I know, it's not like Joyce Murray can go in there directly herself and see what's being said or what's happening there. She might not even know how to use it. I presume she doesn't. So why be on there? <laughs> yeah, you know what I no, mean? It, 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 you're exactly right. Um, <laughs> if you if you gave me you know something written in a different language, and said, hey, yeah, we're going to transcribe episodes of your podcast for a different language, and yeah. I'd be like, well, I need to make sure this is legit. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's what any like normal human being person would do. Like <laughs> a little bit of follow up, maybe asking the odd question, unless you already know the answer and you don't want to hear it or know it. So. You just don't don't ask, but it, you know it's again. You have people who want us to believe that they are competent and intelligent enough to serve in the highest positions of power and decision making in our country, mm-hmm. and then simultaneously think that they accept that they were stupid and ignorant and didn't know <laughs> that you know this group was uh, trying to do some bad things. Yeah, like I'm sorry, it's one or the other. You're either that stupid and you don't deserve to be in cabinet or to be in a position of of uh, Are you talking in, to Joyce Murray right now? No, not talking to Ms. Murray, just anyone in general who, who might make that argument. <laughs> you brought it's, up cabinet, no, that's why I'm asking. It, yeah, but or or even an MP or yeah. a mayor or city councilor or whatever. Take your pick. These are positions of importance in our in our country, in our communities. Mm -hmm. And you can't have it both ways. You can't be, you know, I'm the right person to take on this enormous responsibility of making decisions for our residents, our population. Oh, but I I was, you know, too, I wasn't, I was too stupid to to know (laughs) that who I was, playing footsies with, yeah. you know, uh, on the other side. So one or the other. One of the things we covered last year in episode 60 was your very bold protest of the Chinese consulate's sponsored event at the Union of the BC Municipalities Convention. And we also discussed this idea of a certain political class lobbying and hawking for interests that at least align with the Chinese government and its various connected organizations and actors. And you particularly buried Macmillan LLP and Macmillan Vantage, particularly for their pro-China stances and supporting Huawei. Actually, you know what? I don't know if I told you this. (laughs) So I did a press release for our episode, episode 60. Right. I stopped doing them this year, but for that episode I did. 
And it was basically highlighting how you were going after and criticizing Stockwell Day and this firm, McMillan LLP. <laughs> Whatever ha- 2020 has not been, it's not been kind. Someone to- called him Four Eyes or something. I don't yeah. know. Something happened. So in December last year, I was sending out this press release and I was like, you know, journalists that I know and putting together a list. And then I thought, let's get every Macmillan email I can get and throw them on the list too, just no, for I fun. I just didn't to know st- that. <laughs> oh yeah, I put everyone on there. Um, John McCallum, Stockwell Day, Tim Murphy, Mark Marison. They all got a copy of that press release. Sadly, no, uh, no response. No pickup on that. No. <laughs> but to my main question, You've delved into sort of this world and, and, and looking at how the political establishment in this country has these alignments of interest with China. As you continue to observe this, in your opinion, how compromised really is the Canadian political establishment when we talk about China? Well, I, I think you you can't talk about it without talking about um, the, uh, for shorthand, I'll, I'll say kind of the Canadian corporate establishment as well. Um, and that's sort of the the go-between, uh, should I say, between uh, corporate interests that uh, are very much aligned with a, a deepening of ties uh, with China mm-hmm. um, uh, because of its impact on uh, share price and uh, needing to satisfy shareholders. Uh, And then the sort of political lobbyist uh, class. Uh, And so, you know, it's that sort of, you know, the the web that I see, you've got um, a number of very large corporations in this country uh, whose interests are very much tied with continuing to have that deepening of economic uh, relationship with uh, the government of China uh, and they they have no interest in allowing to enter into the discussion concerns about uh, those decisions impacting Canadian workers, uh, Canadian business, Canadian industry, mm-hmm. uh, the Canadian economy. They have no interest in allowing to enter into that discussion concerns about uh, human rights, the rule of law. Um, it's very much a dollars and cents decision for them. Uh, and you know that has been borne out over you know the last several decades of, of this. Uh, deepening of a relationship and and the answer uh, to any issues that ever arise between the two countries <clears throat> from them is always double down on the same orthodoxy. Oh, um, China has taken two Canadian citizens hostage. What should we do? Oh, we should release Meng Wanzhou and we should, you know, <laughs> redouble our efforts to, you know, uh, make them like us. Right. You know, and, and so that's been very much the, the, the orthodoxy, the party line from the Canadian corporate establishment and takes its form in the uh, China-Canada Business Council and various entities. So, um, you know, they are astute enough to know that they need 
uh, political firepower behind uh, those aims and objectives. Mm -hmm. And that's when they turn to uh, your washed up politicians, (laughs) your uh, former party insiders, and all the rest of it, um, you know, to to come to work for them, to um, use their those relationships um, to to push that agenda, um, and so that's sort of the tic tac toe that I see of of kind of the the force that's at play. It sounds like what you're saying though, it, it's not so much China that's compromised the political establishment; it's Canada's own corporate interests. Well, I I, I don't want to leave the impression that China is sort of a benign actor in this and that, um, you know, certainly um, it has been to their great fortune Mm. that there are people, entities in this country that are willing to get into bed with them to achieve uh, mutual aims that I, I think are not good for the common good. Yeah. In this country, um, so they're not sort of like a a, a passive um, actor in all of this. You know I mean, they it's good for them too, mm-hmm. and, and so you see them and the re- reception that they used to be able to hold <laughs> at the UBCM is an example of that. Yeah, they see uh, value in in them being able to. Um, build very close relationships with politicians and um, and in the political class uh, in this country as well. So um, you know, it's a it's sort of a, I think a bit of a marriage of convenience. Yeah. Uh, between the government of China, which has its own aims and objectives, uh, and and the Canadian corporate establishment um, that views their interest being best served by getting into bed with them to, Mm -hmm. you know, to try and achieve that. Um, But if you, you know, you, if you look at the, um, you know, when you read about this, you know, China has a variety of things that they're doing um, to identify those entities and individuals who they think are kind of low hanging fruit yeah, and, and various enticements to kind of get them on the program. And so um, I don't think it's one or the other. Uh, I think it's both. And, you know, it has been a very powerful political force in this country. Mm-hmm. And the proof is in the pudding on that. You know, look at the last, you know, several years or decades of, of Canada's policy uh, towards China. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't really change with governments. It 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 has survived successive federal governments of different political parties. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's you know, only been two parties. Sure. Really. <laughs> yeah. No. Sure. But you know, the the point being is like you know, the uh, conservatives under Stephen Harper and. The federal liberals and you know under the various leaders they had uh, prior to Trudeau probably didn't agree on a whole hell of a lot. The one area they were able to find common ground on is their approach to to China, yeah. you know, and, and basically satisfied with it, yeah. uh, despite its obvious 
repercussions on uh, on Canadians and on our country. When we zoom out and look at the Canadian corporate interest in China, does it boil down to effectively a war or uh, suppression of the Canadian worker? Is that what it's all about at the end of the day when you look at the root origin cause for why the Canadian corporate class has aligned so well with China? Uh, certainly, the, the the motivation has been profitability, um, has been um, uh, returns to shareholders, um, the outsourcing of of jobs um, to to China and other places for that matter um, has been, in my opinion, about cheap labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. At, 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 absolutely. Um, uh, wage suppression and, and cheap labor um, on the, the the China side. I, I think they're probably much more sophisticated about it and take a much longer uh, view. I mean, if you look at their activity in Canada and around the world, particularly in Africa, if you've done any reading about their activity in Africa, it's a lot about uh, acquiring the the rights and ownership to resources. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have had, again, under successive federal governments of both political stripes, um, the, the green light to sell off, you know, big portions of uh, the Canadian economy, industry, sure. and, and and large companies um, to China, and so you know, I think they're looking at it quite strategically in terms of, you know, they're upfront about their interest in becoming the the dominant force in the world, mm-hmm. um, and that's not. This is not me being a conspiracy theorist. You, <laughs> if you go and listen to any of the speeches that yeah. are made by their political leadership, they're very upfront about their aims. They seek to establish uh, a, a new world order. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is uh, undermining the, the liberal democratic order that has existed in the world since uh, after World War II, and you know, particularly after the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from those ashes, they have been very deliberate about trying to position themselves to emerge as that dominant force in the world. Uh, and so they're strategic about uh, the moves they make and uh, the, the acquisitions that they, they undertake. Um, I think there's far less strategic uh, thought being put into it in the Canadian uh, corporate side. I think they are making, you know, short-term decisions that they think are good uh, for the bottom line. I certainly don't think that they're taking into uh, the equation the, the interests of, of the country, mm-hmm. uh, of our country. Um, I, I think it's, it's a much more selfish decision. Mm-hmm. We talked about this last time, but one of the big bombshells that you dropped last year, and that was in the Star of Vancouver when Star of Vancouver was still around, was this idea that there were people in Port Coquitlam who were coming to you and saying that they were being harassed by agents or proponents of the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. I guess what we didn't really go over last time was, was this united front at work? 
Sam Cooper talks about this group all the time, United Front. What is your understanding of what this group is and what they're doing within our borders, including your own community? So there's been a tremendous amount of um, reporting on the United Front and their activities. And and as I always do, I want to give full credit to uh, journalists um, like Sam Cooper. And, and there are many others now who are reporting on this, who are bringing these activities out of the shadows into the light and letting pu- the public see for themselves what has been happening in our communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's sort of, you know, people have a, it, it's almost like there's a disbelief that it could even be like, that this, could this be real? Could this yeah. actually be happening? You know, how is it that this is happening? Like, because I think people, you know, people still have a, a fair bit of faith that our sort of, our rules and our systems will, you know, stop bad things from happening, sure. right? And so I talked to lots of people who are like, well, no, that that can't be happening. That wouldn't be allowed. Someone would do something about it, <laughs> right? Um, but it, it it is happening. So, um, so there's been a lot of reporting, and, and and what we know is that there are a number of um, individuals uh, and associations, um, and they give themselves various names. You talked about one earlier um, with respect to the lawsuit against Sam, um, who have uh, connections and affiliations to to varying degrees. Uh, back to um, you know the the sort of uh, decision making center or or the I guess if you can think about to the um, the brain hmm. of this whole operation who who get direction on you know doing and certain sorry, activities. What's the brain then? Well, the United Front, right? And, okay. and that's and that's that is a you know that's an official. That's again not a. This is not some made up thing. Like someone like, <laughs> hey, we've uncovered this. We're going to call it the United Front to explain. No, no, no. It exists. It's an official branch of of the government, of right. Chinese government. That's the name with purpose to yeah. That's the name influence. with yeah, yeah, and that's the name they give it. Yeah, and and so um, they get marching orders, and and their objective is to um, is to uh, suppress. Uh, opinions and activity that is hostile to the interests of the Chinese government. We've seen repeated examples of that in Metro Vancouver. Um, you know, when a, a, a group of people surrounded, um, you know, pro Hong Kong um, demonstrators, mm. or not even demonstrators, uh, pro Hong Kong activists, I guess you would call them, who were in a church. Yeah. You recall that? They yeah. were. In, they were in a church uh, praying, and you know this United Front uh, group, and you know uh, affiliate affiliates and hangers on. And look, there there's degrees to this, right? Mm-hmm. There's always you know there's kind of like the the people who the casuals, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, that's no, but I think that's true. You know, there's like you know there's the people who are you know up to their eyeballs in it. And but they have people they know, and they're able mm. to, you know, hey, come with me to this thing, right? Um, so we've seen like examples of 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 that of that suppression. Um, it, it's you know 
you know, I'll, I'll just say specifically about the instance I spoke about. I mean, that's an example of, of suppression. So, in that case, again, to refresh people's memory, I've been approached by um, not only a um, couple of people who've lived in, uh, who live in Port Coquitlam, but others in Metro Vancouver who have reported receiving um, harassing phone calls, mm-hmm. um, who've reported receiving a visit to their homes hmm. um, from individuals who don't identify, the, hey, hi, I'm here from the United <laughs> Front to say, we're on to you yeah. and you better stop, yeah. right? But who contact them and leave them with the clear impression that their activism, whether it's attending a protest, posting on social media, mm-hmm. um, expressing, you know, a, 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 an opinion on uh, on Hong Kong, on Taiwan, on Tibet, on uh, Uyghurs, that that's been uh, been noticed. That that's hmm. you know that that has been observed, and. Particularly, what they focus on is those who have family members back in in China or right. or Hong Kong, um, and so you know that's again another example of the the suppression activity, uh, and then there's also the you know the promotion side of things, and you know so if if that's the stick, the carrot is come to our reception and let us tell you how amazing you are. And give you free food and free drinks. Oh, you know what? You should visit China. We'd love to take you there. Hmm. And I'm sure you could share with us many wonderful things. And let's, you know, let's arrange a, a trip for you to, to come to China. If you're an elected official or you know, someone in a, a position of political influence. Right. Um, so they have, again, the... The carrot side, um, the the stick side, um, you know the the one that I I, you know and you know some of it's extremely sophisticated, um, some of it seems a bit ham fisted. The the part the one that made me laugh. Remember when they had those like teenagers, younger people. Who, oh, the mind the, at, protesters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah at, the, at the courthouse with the signs and like... Yeah, they know. told a bunch of kids that they would yeah, be yeah. in a music video. That's right. And I think they paid 20 bucks or 50 bucks or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like... The, someone has to do It did not go that. well. No, it, 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 exactly, right? So, anyways, but again, like... There are very so are clear. they? They're taking orders from the brain from United Front, or they're doing things and then reporting back, like or both. Like, I, well, that, I, I think that they get clear direction. Okay, right. I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't purport to know that they are told. Okay, on such and such day, you go do X, Y, and Z. But you know, they're 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 obviously given clear direction about. Um, you know, the the objectives of what they should be doing and the ab- objectives is to gain information, report back, build relationships with people who might be in positions of influence or decision-making within different levels of government uh, and to suppress uh, any opinions uh, that would be contrary or hostile to 
their interests. So we know, or you just sort of suggested that they were behind this lawsuit or mobilizing support against Sam Cooper. Have they come after you? Like, I imagine you would be a pretty prominent target based on what you say. And especially, like I said, the media coverage you got last year. Yeah, but not this year, but last year. That, well, <laughs> we're going back to the original question. No, I know. I, I, I know. Um, but have you had a brush in with them the same way maybe Sam did? Um, what I can can say, and this is not trying to be coy, um, but I know that I'm on the radar. Okay, I, I'm. I, I know that based on information <laughs> that I I have, um, but. Part of my speaking out, I think, um, has you know has brought a, a, I guess, a bit of security. I don't know if that's the right word. Oh, to so use, you're but, too high profile. Well, I, I just think you know if the you know if there was a attempt to really intimidate uh, or harass me that uh, crossed the line, um, they know that I would be very public about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that would bring unwanted attention. Right. Um, and so the sad thing, and this is what upsets me, is that it, it it's easier for them to, you know, Target um, a, a Chinese Canadian um, uh, person, a, um, a, a, a someone from the Uyghur community, mm. um, you know, someone uh, a Hong a Hong Konger, um, like they go after regular people for lack of a better sure. word, yeah, yeah. right? Um, and, and that's part of why I spoke up when I had people come to me is because I, I am fortunate to have a bit of a platform to be able to articulate their con concerns yeah. and things that have happened. Um, and, you know, those folks uh, feel much, you know, the, the intimidation is, is effective to some degree. They, they do get scared. Of course. Yeah. You know, and, and so um, I, I find that, frustrating because there's an inequity there you know mm -hmm. like i'm they they can't really really do much to affect me mm -hmm. or try and intimidate me or silence me i guess is a better way of putting it um but they they go after people who they think they're going to be successful in, in in silencing and so i view this part of my responsibility to stand with those people because they don't have the same power or or privilege or position that I do. Mm -hmm. And with that, in my opinion, comes a responsibility for me to stand with those people. That's why I stand, I stood with that group at the UBCM reception. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, some people like to think that I orchestrated that or you know, whatever um i was invited yeah you know who else was invited who else every single 
UBCM delegate, of which there were a couple thousand. You know how many people came? Six. So, hmm. you know, I was invited along with everyone else by well, they, chi- by Chinese Canadians. They didn't have appies. That's that's your that's <laughs> yeah, the problem. That's the problem. <laughs> by by Chinese by community groups of Chinese Canadians. Yeah. By the the Uyghur community, um, and I viewed it as my responsibility to go and stand with those people. So I, I bring up this group because you have come out in public, as you've have you said, and you're you're talking about United Front as well. And you've talked about how there are cross parties, you know, or across levels of government in terms of where their affiliated groups are trying to get influence. But you said that anyone caught playing footsie with, you know, United Front or United Front affiliated people should be disqualified from holding office. Mm-hmm. You've been coy about this, but who are you talking about? Who has, which public officials have been playing footsie or associating with? Well, this group. N- no, I, I don't think I, I have been coy because I'm, I'm usually saying that in response to examples that are, are brought <laughs> forward. Um, so, uh, um, you know, it, it, the sad case is that in, in many examples, this is these are now former uh, elected officials, mm-hmm. and, and so, but uh, um, former MP uh, from Richmond, um, Joe, yeah, Joe Pesha Salido. Um, <laughs> You know, like, I mean, I don't know how many times he had to, uh, you know, be <laughs> revealed to have met with someone who's involved in the United Front, have them working on his campaigns. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll be very specific. I mean, Teresa Watt, who is, um, well, wait a minute. Now, did she hold on? And she held on. She yeah. held on. Okay. All right. So, there you go. Um, I mean, there's a... a uh, another elected official who's been unapologetic about her uh, various uh, appearances with um, groups or individuals that have known connections to uh, United Front work. So, yeah. So she I, should not be in office is what you're saying. Well, because that was your original statement. Yeah, I, yeah, that's my belief. You know, <laughs> obviously the the voters of her constituency disagree, and and that's democracy. But my view is that, uh, you know, whether you can create a, I'm not necessarily saying you should try and create a, a rule that says that. I don't know necessarily that you could to, you know, to be able to prove with enough uh, definitiveness that it become. A, a no, rule. You're, but I'm, I, my you're point, creating a moral I, I, judgment. I, yes, I'm saying that as as individuals, as as voters, as citizens, we uh, I think have the responsibility to say, you know, that type of behavior um, is disqualifying, right. and and you know, and if we took that approach, then it would probably send a a very clear message to other elected officials who might want to dabble in, in some of that stuff that there uh, will be a political consequence to it. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's my point. I don't think, again, back to your earlier point about this stuff being in the news for a day or two and then gone, I, I don't think it's necessarily felt that there is a real political consequence to 
to engaging in this type of activity or relationship, these types of relationship with uh, United Front groups. I guess what I'm getting at, and some people might say this is gossip mongering or whatever, but when you come out and say, hey, if you have affiliations with people in this group or you know, loosely connected to this group, you should be disqualified from office. You're not pulling that out of the air. You're talking about specific people who you believe or you are aware of have connections to this group. Right. So when I ask you, you gave me one former MP and, mm-hmm. and one current MLA. So were you just talking about two people? Well, I, I guess I, I say I haven't. Would, would you put Joyce Murray in that group? Well, definitely based on the information that uh, has come to light about the the WeChat group. I mean, like. Okay, so we have three people. (laughs) (laughs) You've made this moral judgment for how many people. Like, you don't have to give me an exact number, but how widespread is this problem? Well, I guess the answer, um, Mo, is I don't know. I, like everyone, I'm reading the information that that comes to light. And as those incidences come to light, uh, they, I I think, you know, that. It gets beyond more than just, oh, this is like a one-off bad apple. You know, when you understand the the full picture, I think you can say, you can make a judgment with some certainty that um, this type of stuff is happening. Now, I have not done the deep, you know, (laughs) undercover investigative work to say, okay, I've produced a list of, you know, a hundred names of people who I think are are involved in this sort of stuff. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm not, I don't throw it out casually as sort of like, oh, it, yeah, it's just this one person. Um, so, and because of that, that's why I'm asking yeah, you, yeah, like, no, and how I, widespread I, is it? Who are we talking about? And, and I, you know, I, I think it's, you know, I, I've, what I've tried to articulate is that we've kind of scratched the surface mm. on... Um, because of the investigative work of journalists. Um, we know that there, what do we know? We know that there are groups that are out there that are active and whose objective is to build relationships with elected officials to, to gain influence. And not just with elected officials, but, you know, with people who are involved in political parties and who are perceived to have influence. Okay? We know that that's happening. We know, um, as occasions come to light, based on the the reporting of good journalists, of of instances where we can put a uh, a face and a name to it, right? Um, you put those two things together, and I, I think you can say, you know, not maybe beyond a shadow of a doubt, but I think with some certainty that there's more out there. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, just because. We're not able at this moment in time to produce a definitive list, I think doesn't suggest that it's overblown or or not happening. Mm -hmm. My opinion. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was at a private fundraising event at a West Vancouver mansion of a developer. And it is alleged that there were United Front people or people sort of affiliated with those circles there. Is that disqualifying as per your moral judgment, yes or no? I mean, I don't think you should be... Uh, okay, so yes, because I don't... <laughs> <laughs> See, I, 
I, I tend to do, I tend to actually answer those yes or no questions. Um, if what you're telling me and, and, I'm taking it at face value because I, you uh, know, the photo, uh, you know what I'm talking about. No, no, no. I, I, I read it at the time. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's just, I it was some time ago. And so it's not completely top of mind, <laughs> but if we can just establish the facts. Mm-hmm. So facts are that, uh, United front individuals are contributing Politi- are, are making political contributions, are assisting in the fundraising uh, for a, a political party. Yes, that, in my opinion, should be disqualifying. Mm-hmm. One thing that's come up in Coquitlam, your neighbor, is the influence of the Confucius Institute. What is this group? How are they related to schools in Coquitlam and I suppose elsewhere as well? So the Confucius Institute uh, is an initiative of the the Chinese government um, to establish relationships with education institutes, um, places of higher learning um, around the world. And so I'll, I'll as best I can give you... Um, the, the two views of what they are, mm-hmm. okay? On the one hand, it's a very benign cultural exchange that's about um, language, history, culture, um, very good things, mm-hmm. right? Things that I support and we should be doing um, to break down barriers and, and build solidarity amongst people and amongst uh, different cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, so some people would have you believe that's all it is, you know, nothing to see here, move along. <laughs> okay. Um, now where that runs into tr- trouble is that there are some facts. The facts are that the Confucius Institute has been kicked out of a, a number of uh, academic um, institutions, universities, school <laughs> districts, um, number of universities in the United Kingdom, a number of universities in the United States, BCIT here, mm. once at a Confucius Institute, gone. Uh, Toronto School District, the entire Greater Toronto School District, once at a Confucius Institute, gone. The province of New Brunswick, banned them from the entire province, even though New Brunswick used, used to be one of the epicenters of Confucius Institutes, which is kind of odd because you would think, why New Brunswick? But there's a whole side story there. That, <laughs> but anyways, um, they, had, they were fully in, ingrained there and, and, and they kicked them out. Why have they been kicked out? Yeah, obvious okay? question. So, because in a number of these places, they are concerned that the government of China is exercising undue influence over what gets taught uh, and is using them, again, as a form of of reporting on local um, political conditions Hmm. uh, and and really as a vehicle, another vehicle, um, similar to United Front, through which to expand their influence. 
Um, and, and people have pointed to very specific examples. Um, for instance, in Toronto, <clears throat> a number of of former uh, found, um, former uh, Confucius Institute teachers came forward and said that um, they were uh, refused opportunities or uh, faced harassment uh, or fired once it came to light that they were practitioners, followers of uh, Falun Gong. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, that's the type of thing that uh, we would never stand for in in this country. You're uh, religious spiritual beliefs uh, are not disqualifying um, when it comes to employment. So, so, um, sorry, just before we yeah. move forward. So when we talk about Confucius Institute in these schools mm -hmm. and varying levels of schools from elementary schools to universities, yeah. effectively, do they run as like adjunct programs or are they embedded in the curriculum of certain courses like how does that how does that work so my understanding is that that varies in some cases um it's the the former in other cases it's the latter okay uh, or both okay um and, and so depending on the the agreement uh between the college the school whatever with the confucius institute they may do one of those or or both of those so in the tri-cities in your area mm -hmm. what are we seeing in terms of um so the relationship um my understanding is that um, it's an adjunct program. Okay. Um, so it's something that you have to uh, choose to um, enroll uh, your child in, or if you're older, mm -hmm. you make that choice. Um, what was interesting in the last couple weeks is the Globe and Mail reported on uh, obtaining a copy of the uh, agreement uh, between um, the district and the Confucius Institute. And there were a number of things in there that I think speak to the concerns people have. Uh, for instance, um, one of the clauses obligates um, the Confucius Institute partner, um, whoever that is, mm -hmm. uh, to report on the attitudes of local community leaders um, and officials. <laughs> like you. Yeah, so you can imagine how that's gone. It's probably a 200-page... Um, wow. That, that, that's one of the obligations. Yeah. Now, if I recall correctly, um, in, in the district, to be fair to them, they said, oh, no, that's we, that part isn't applicable or we don't do that. But okay. um, anyways... But that's it's in the agreement, mm -hmm. so that's one of the the requirements. Um, one of the other things it says is that if you harm the reputation of the Confucius Institute mm -hmm. uh, and by extension the government of China, um, that you know in, there can be um, you know, financial implications for that. Um, and, and so I think what that starts to speak to is you know the the nature of our uh, of our schools and our uh, places of of learning yeah. which you know last time i checked are supposed to be a place where there is a free flow of ideas uh where we can talk about the fact that in 2020 the government of china has in the neighborhood of 3 million Uyghurs 
held in modern-day concentration camps and are inflicting a genocide uh, upon those people. Um, when the world had said previously, we weren't going to allow that ever to happen again, mm -hmm. um, we should be able to talk about that in our schools. That ain't on when it comes to the Confucius Institute. You so know, they can't even talk about it. Like, let's say you have an, an adjunct program in a school, but then within that school, they have a contemporary uh, current events class. Right. And the current events class covers this subject. Well, Uyghurs. I, I, I mean, I don't know if there's been a specific instance of that happening, but I would imagine they would interpret that as harmful to their reputation. So they're influenced, even though, even though they're not in the curriculum, they are still influencing the curriculum. Again, I, I, I want to be really fair to the district. They will tell you that that is not the case in mm -hmm. their particular arrangement, but in places where the Confucius Institute has been kicked out of, that has been one of the concerns and why, you know, those, uh, those, uh, Institutions have chosen to end their relationship. And this is not in Port Coquitlam? Um, well, the Coquitlam School District does cover uh, Port Moody, Coquitlam, Port Coquitlam, I and, see. and okay. more in Belcara. Yeah. 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 So this is happening under your watch. Why haven't you stopped well, it? Well, Mo, it's a different level of government. Uh, <laughs> typical. <laughs> well, I mean... Look, I'm talking about it. Yeah. You know. Is this a provincial thing or is this a school board thing? How, where, well, where does it land? Well, so therein, I think, lies some further discussion. Um, districts have been allowed to uh, come to these arrangements. And, and let me make this point really clear because people who are um, less than charitable try to say that, oh, you're, you're conflating the two things. This is not about international education, mm. okay? There are international education programs that involve cultural exchanges uh, and, fr and students from a, a multitude of countries mm -hmm. coming here. Um, I remember it happening, you know, when I went to high school um, and becoming friends with some of those students. And that's a wonderful thing. This is not that. I want to be really clear about that. Mm -hmm. um, but the province has up to this point allowed districts to um, pursue these agreements if they wish. Um, and, and so certainly it would be within the uh, purview of the province to say that they've determined that we're, we're no longer going to have them in the province of British Columbia. Uh, right. similar, uh, similarly, in terms of what's happened in New Brunswick. In New Brunswick, it's the provincial government that's made that determination. Hmm. Is the Confucius Institute, aside from the programs that they're providing in these different schools and districts, are they providing funding on top of that? So my understanding is they do provide funding um, for the purpose of running the program. Hmm. Uh, and again, um, this is the theme. You're going to hear that, um, oh, it's it's different in, in different places, right? right? Okay. Um, and, and so um, in Toronto, for instance, um, they exercised 
control over the hiring process. I know that that was one of the the concerns that came wow. to light. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, the teach the teachers were were handpicked. Um, you know, I would be remiss if I said part of the um, concern is the uh, is the content of what they're they're teaching as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a. a a documentary, um, I believe, it's, if I'm remembering correctly, it's it's called "In the Name of Confucius," and it is a, a documentary um, about Confucius Institute uh, in Canada. And, and what you'll see there is in in textbooks and materials in curriculum. Um, you have a, a, an alternate universe being painted um, in terms of. Uh, various human rights issues wow. in terms of you know Tiananmen Square massacre having never happened, um, <laughs> you know a whole gamut of things, and so that is one of the the concerns as well. Is, is this this uh, uh, alternate history, this alternate universe being uh, being taught to students? Yeah, that's not reflective of what has happened. When we discuss all of these things that we just did, the Confucius Institute, the United Front, stuff that you're seeing in your own community, Mm -hmm. do you think that the media covers this enough? And do you think there are enough stories of what's actually happening on the ground for the general public to understand that China through these different tentacles and organizations is very much an antagonist to Canada. Uh, I I do actually think the media has done a, a very good job in the last couple of years of covering issues related to China. I think uh, prior to that, I, it wasn't that these things weren't happening. Um, they certainly were, mm-hmm. but you, you saw much uh, less reporting on it. Uh, but you have, and I think you can credit, you know, a couple of specific journalists and reporters who have been dogged about, you know, continuing to report on this. Um, but I think credit where credit is due, there has been a fair bit of coverage uh, in the last couple of years. And that's probably reflected in the fact that in the most recent polling, um, public opinion in, in Canada towards the government of China um, has plummeted. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's in the toilet. Yeah. Um, and, and probably globally as well. Yeah, for sure. a lot of countries. Yeah. You know, and, and so I think that citizens of this country are paying attention to this. I think they're concerned about it. I think that they understand why it's important to, uh, and they understand the implications it has for the future of Canada, um, for the future of our democracy, uh, and and without being dramatic, I think, for the future of our world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because again, going back to one of my earlier comments, government of China and its political leadership is very upfront about its ambitions, uh, and its plans, and it would be a radical departure from the liberal democracy 
that uh, we enjoy in this country mm -hmm. uh, and is enjoyed in much of the world. Aaron O'Toole has kind of brought the China file to the forefront in federal politics. I don't think anyone else is pushing the way he's pushing on that file. And of course, when you're in opposition, it's a lot easier to do. Do you like what you see from him on that specific file? Do you think he might be someone who will actually take it seriously? Because based on the discussions we've had so far, it doesn't sound like it's being taken very seriously. Yeah. Um, again, giving credit where it's due, um, I do think that he has done a very admirable job in, in raising these issues. And as you know, my <clears throat> political inclination is not towards the conservative uh, party. It's not. It's there, not. <laughs> there are so many on Twitter that amplify you. And <laughs> um, but one of the things I've said, and I believe to my core, is that this should be a nonpartisan issue. Mm -hmm. This to me is not about liberal, conservative, NDP. Um, this should be an issue that unifies our political parties and our elected representatives. Uh, because again, I think it gets to the core of our of our democracy uh, and you know the kind of core values of our country that although we may disagree on various things, we all believe in some fundamental things. Yeah. Um, and so I give him full credit uh, for putting these issues front and center. Um, I hope he continues. Uh, and I think it's a challenge for the other political parties because I think there's a very strong public appetite for the types of uh, the, this discussion uh, and for a change in the status quo when it comes to how we deal with China. And I think if Mr. O'Toole is the only person who's articulating that, he will, he will be the beneficiary of it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we'll see where this goes, but... Um, you know, I again give him full credit, and uh, you know his his comments to me have come across as um, a reflective of a genuine belief that this needs to be dealt with. Yeah, I'm gonna open up a second beer now. <laughs> I'm gonna switch gears here. <laughs> <laughs> you were obviously a big proponent of the public inquiry into money laundering in BC. Yeah. You've been following the Cullen Commission, I presume. Yes. I feel like it's kind of been in the background for a lot of folks. Obviously, we had COVID, and then we had the WE scandal, and then we had the BC election, and of course, all of us are still following the US presidential election. As someone who is following the Cullen Commission, what are we learning that we didn't know from reporting such as, again, Sam Cooper uh, that he provided or the German reports? Like, have there been new revelations or something that we didn't know that has come out in the commission so far? Um, I, I think the, the short answer to that is, is probably no, and that there hasn't been like the aha moment, you know, Stop the presses, <laughs> you know, like this is the smoking gun, yeah. right? Um, 
and I and, and I think it would be wrong to think that um, that that has to you know th- that if there's not you know like this huge bombshell that like someone hit, you know we've got the pictures here's the person <laughs> they were caught red-handed I knew it that that, that somehow that that um, that it, it's been a failure. Or, or things of but that But there's nature, been a but, very high expectation sure. of and, what and, people want out oh, of this, especially oh. when you compare it to the Charbonneau Commission, right? I, I agree. People want to see heads roll. People want to see, you know, For at sure. least charges laid against people. Yeah, and so what I'm what I'm trying to say is it it's going to be, what, what you see thus far is a, the pattern emerging <laughs> and dots being connected. Um, and Mr. Pinnock, who um, has been providing his testimony, um, this, I think, is one of the more consequential uh, people that uh, the commission will hear from. Mm-hmm. Um, it's early days, though. Like, I mean, that's the, I guess, the thing that I'm, um, and I'm not a patient person by <laughs> nature, but I'm, I'm preaching some degree of, of patience or, or more so saying that, the work already is has been very important and will continue to be important. And, you know, just because on any given day, something that comes out of the commission isn't, you know, trending the number one thing on Twitter mm-hmm. doesn't mean that what's coming out isn't important. I think right. it's starting to fill in the picture. And, you know, that's what I think British Columbians want. They want... To understand the full picture of, of how such a travesty could have been allowed to have taken root uh, in our province and have happened, uh, and then yes, for accountability and, and all of that, all of those elements as well. And so, I, I'm comp- I still am confident that the inquiry is going to get us there mm-hmm. um, but it's not going to be an overnight thing it is going to take some time um, to hear from you know the various witnesses and and there's different stages of this as well yeah um, but it sounds like you've settled down a little bit because I remember that when Mr. Pinnock when when Fred Pinnock who is a former RCMP officer wasn't given standing in the commission you expressed a lot of skepticism and I took that skepticism to Attorney General David Eby. And he, yep. you know, he explained that, okay, he might not have standing. Obviously, the government has nothing to do with it, but yep. he will probably be testifying as he is now. I, I don't so, get me wrong. So, do you think I still, <laughs> okay. uh, like, so I'm just, I'm yeah, just yeah. wondering if, have you also moderated perhaps your own expectations of what this looks like? No, my expectations are, are still very high in terms of outcomes mm. uh, because I think British Columbians deserve those outcomes. Um, where I'm, I'm being uh, patient is understanding like, you know, I'm, I think I'm like every single other person. I want this. I want this stop now. I want the people who were responsible in jail. I want, you know, the, the politicians who oversaw it to be held accountable and including criminal accountability mm-hmm. where warranted. I, I want all of that. Um, I also understand that, um, that doesn't just, you know, happen overnight. And, yeah. and so can you describe that as, you know, moderating a movie? I don't think really, <laughs> I think it's just an understanding that, um, 
it's happening. <laughs> That's a good thing. And I implore people to pay attention to what's happening. Um, and, and I guess I'm just, I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that, you know, people's attention tends to go where the bombshell of the day sure. goes, right? Yeah. And, and I'm, and, and just, I'm trying to make the point that every piece of information that comes through the commission is important and, you know, we're going to be able to weave it all together uh, and I hope and I believe get the results that, you know, British Columbians have, have wanted out of this. And, and then, you know, and so um, I, I still have high expectations and, and trust me, if there's a point that I think, you know, the, the, the commission is, is failing in its job and, and British Columbians are going to be left wanting. Mm -hmm. You know, I won't be shy about articulating that. Going back to Fred Pinnock. So he's been testifying and he basically said that the RCMP in BC were puppets for Rich Coleman, who was the minister in charge of gaming at the time. And he's saying that Coleman was very much aware of what was happening in the casinos. I mean, this is it almost sounds like a dumb question based on what you just said, but do you think British Columbians should be upset if Rich Coleman and ultimately Christy Clark are not called to testify? Yes, absolutely. Do you think it's a, not a proper commission if they're not brought up? Like, do you think, would you hold the integrity of the commission into question? Not the integrity, but I would say it would be a, a, a glaring... The completion, I suppose, it, yeah. It would be a, a, a glaring hole mm -hmm. um, if that was left uh, uncanvassed, if, if that was not uh, part of its work. Mm -hmm. Having uh, Mr. Coleman former premier and others come and account for their decisions and, and, and not, you know, not because it's like we need them there to kind of pontificate on what they were thinking, but because there were specific deliberate choices, not just things that happened, you know, kind of happenstance or just, you know, natural course of government type stuff. There were, mm -hmm. there were specific decisions and choices that the government made that contributed and allowed to flourish the money laundering and, and all of the horrendous impacts that that has had on our province. And they need to be questioned on those, mm -hmm. you know, when the government decided to disband the illegal gaming enforcement team, integrate illegal gaming enforcement team, just after that team raises the the red flag <laughs> yeah. saying, hey, we've got a problem here. Yeah. That was a choice. Mm -hmm. That wasn't just, oh, it just happened. Yeah. Someone decided we're going to do that. And so those choices by that government need to be accounted for. 
So a lot of those choices were directly under Rich Coleman, mm-hmm. right? Now, I actually brought you up with Christy Clark. I believe you're aware. Did you? <laughs> it made the local paper in your community, not my community. And she said you are, quote, a very, very political guy, very partisan guy, and a very, very ambitious young political operative. She said that what you said about her and what you did say about her was, quote, dereliction of duty, right? You said that's Christie's fault in all of this. She says that, quote, it's not true. It's not backed up by any of the facts. She said that her government pushed the feds on this without much success, which actually seems to be pretty consistent with Attorney General David Eby's experience as well. And she said that they worked with the RCMP in BC, the police in BC, the BC Lottery Corporation, and casinos. A lot of the stuff that you brought up, and I don't want you to just rehash that, but a lot of Mm -hmm. the stuff that you brought up is directly under Rich Coleman's file. Are you saying Christie should also testify because effectively she was Rich Coleman's boss? Yes. But there's nothing else like in terms of directly linking her to what was happening in the casinos or the policing or anything like that, right? Again, whether it was the disbandment of that police team, um, the... Firing of whistleblowers, the you know, a number of these decisions were government decisions. She's the premier CEO of the government. Again, this is like the classic when government has success. You know, I'm the (laughs) premier. I am you know singularly responsible for you know having delivered this success when you know. Government shits the bed. Oh, well, yeah, I might have been premier, but um, no, that was someone else's. I mean, I just to me, it just defies belief that you know this is just all happened. I mean, if what she wants us to believe is just kind of all happened under her nose with no knowledge. I mean, she wasn't throwing Rich Coleman under the bus. I think quite the opposite. She was saying that. He tried. They were trying. Yeah, yeah, they tried. Yeah. 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 Which so you stick with dereliction of duty. Well, I just think it's part of the responsibility slash duty of the premier. Mm-hmm. I mean I'm wondering if she if she moved your opinion at all in that chat. Um no. <laughs> Hard no. <laughs> You know what I found interesting when I was chatting with Premier Clark? Mm-hmm. Some, you know, the, the money laundering stuff and, and, and talking about the inquiry, I thought, was quite interesting to get her point of view. But the Richard Lee thing, I thought, was really bizarre. And you and I actually discussed that as well in, in the last time you were here. And so Richard Lee was detained in China for like eight hours. His stuff was gone through, which include electronics, I think a computer and a phone, something like that. And she admits that she knew that it happened. And when I asked her, did you do anything? She said, no, she just would let Richard handle it. But sort of acknowledged that there was sensitive government information that was vulnerable in this situation. Mm -hmm. What did you make of that when you heard 
that. <laughs> and I know this is separate from money laundering and everything else, but it does kind of go back into that China stuff. What did you think of that? Yeah, j- just it's a theme, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> like, just the washing of hands it, it seems to be a real. It's like the go-to thing for conversation. Not my problem. I don't know. Maybe I'm just way off base. I, I just tend to think that when things of a serious nature like that, and I think, I mean, I would hope everyone would agree that that was a very serious issue. Mm-hmm. Like serious issues, serious incidents require a serious response and to have the the premier i mean i can't feel bad for richard lee in the way uh, i'm i'm trying to put myself in in his shoes and and to think that okay well it this, sounds like he did the right thing by telling people well that's my point what else is he supposed to do you know like uh, let's put ourselves in his shoes so this happens to you you're probably you know like just kind of blown away and you do what you think you're supposed to do, which is to go to your, you know, superiors, I suppose, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, go to your, your premier, your leader, um, house leader um, and say, you know, this unbelievable thing has, you know, and and extremely concerning thing has happened to me. Mm -hmm. And like, there's no, follow-up it's you know there's just it's okay thanks yeah i mean i I don't know i I just like the lack of taking responsibility for things that happen Mm -hmm. um it's just you know the turning the blind eye the washing of hands that it's not my problem it's someone else's problem um you know so it runs counter to the like we are the party of personal responsibility (laughs) you know Every individual should take personal responsibility for themselves. Um, Not when you lose elections, though. That's because they call the snap election, (laughs) and the media love Dr. Bonnie Henry. (laughs) It's not their fault, man. Not when it comes to a snap election during a pandemic. (laughs) Well, when they had to go up against Mo Amir. I was not running. The bombshell. (laughs) I was just a... Observer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to talk about you in Port Coquitlam. Sure. Because uh, you did find yourself quite busy with city work, of course. But Always. at the same time, one of your city councillors, Laura DuPont, am I saying her last name correct? Yep. Laura DuPont, she was censured. I don't know what that means, but <sighs> apparently she's suing the city of Port Coquitlam for defamation. And this all has to do with the removal of a cedar tree that you're not protecting because, these are my words, you're taking the side of a real estate developer. Again, one of our favorite targets. Can you explain what's happening with Councillor DuPont? Walk me through what all of this is. Like, what does censuring mean? Sure. Is she being bullied? Because that's sort of what she's accused you and the city of. Sure. Um, So, firstly... Uh, censure is basically council's way of saying that a member of council engaged in conduct that was uh, unbecoming, conduct that 
failed to uphold the the standards of the community charter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm very disappointed that uh, this has happened in our city. We've had a, an excellent council that is collegial and works extremely well together, um, but we we do have responsibilities, and one of our responsibilities is that uh, when we are elected. Uh, we swear an oath to uphold the community charter. And the uh, community charter has uh, certain provisions. And one of those provisions is that when council is dealing with a matter that is closed, confidential, Mm -hmm. and and there are specific, a very limited specific items in which you can have a closed or confidential discussion or decision on, that uh, members of council are obligated to keep that information uh, and that decision confidential until such point as it is released to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, this was not uh, with a matter of uh, a cedar tree. Um, I, I, that's that's uh, <laughs> that's what it says in the I, media. <laughs> well, I, I, and so I'm trying to understand. Yeah, that's if she said a no, name or something in in chamber that she wasn't supposed to because no. it was being recorded. No, no. I so if you, I'll I'll take you through it. Okay, um, please. So, but I just want to be very clear. Yeah, the idea that. This is about a, a tree is a miscarriage. Well, I'll be the judge mis- of that. You okay. tell me yeah, that's what's going on. I'm giving you <laughs> the facts, okay? Um, council was has been engaged and was engaged for several years uh, about uh, a downtown Port Coquitlam redevelopment project, mm-hmm. uh, which includes city-owned land, Okay. And we have been working on that for a long time. Um, it is a, a, a joint partnership um, that includes a, a, a private landowner as well and city-owned land. Mm-hmm. And, and those type of partnerships are not uncommon. Um, as you can imagine, when you're negotiating a agreement between uh, two entities, one being the city, one being the private landowner, uh, those negotiations happen in closed meetings and confidential meetings until such time as you have an agreement, and then we go through our normal city process to approve development, which includes uh, obviously the, the, the full gamut of uh, public uh, public process. Sure. In this instance, um, a independent third party investigator found that on three separate occasions, Councillor DuPont had disclosed confidential information related to that development and that negotiation. Uh, and beca- to who? Uh, to outside third parties. Okay. And because of that, uh, Council accepted those findings uh, of that in- investigation. Unanimously? Unanimously. And then determined what it felt was uh, an appropriate consequence uh, for that those actions, and so that's why there's been uh, the the censure, um, which again, you know, she's still a member of city council, still attends all the our meetings, still has uh, her ability to to speak and articulate her perspective and point of view and to vote on all matters. It's just simple. It's council's way of saying that 
a member of council engaged in in behavior and actions that but she is denied from certain work pardon me is she denied from certain work within council by being no. censured no 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 she's the the so only her her role has not been affected one iota <clears throat> except for this label of being censured is that correct the only um, stipulation that uh, council uh, placed on her is that for a period of 12 months she was not eligible to uh, serve as a, a city representative or pardon me council representative on the uh, any uh, external committees to mm. which the city or council makes appointments. Okay, got it. Um, and uh, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, there were two committees um, that she served on that were not Port Coquitlam committees, but external committees in which other members of council are now representing the city. Right. Um, so it uh, sh- she has filed a, a, a lawsuit. Um, which is her her right to do. Um, she applied for an injunction. Um, the judge dismissed that injunction, and in uh, in uh, the judge's ruling, made clear that uh, uh, the city is in a, a strong position. Sorry, uh, and, I, I'm I'm uh, laughing because, and I'm trying to hold back my laughter. Where does this tree come in? <laughs> because this was reported. Am I crazy? Like this was reported in the Tri City News, right? Like there was some issue around a tree. So yeah. I'm I'm trying to figure out where does this story now fit into your narrative? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the the tree is a, a part there. There is a single tree that is a part of this uh, this rede- this redevelopment, this the downtown project redevelopment. in the downtown. Okay. Yeah, uh, and so council uh, through its public process in approving um, the new development, um, which by the way is a wonderful thing for the city, includes a new public pedestrian plaza and square, includes. Uh, Housing um, and family-friendly housing, mm-hmm. accessible housing includes commercial space, including some commercial space that's actually going to be owned by the city. And I could explain to you a number of reasons why we feel that's important in terms of trying to get the types of businesses we want in our downtown. But as part of that approval, there is a, a single tree that had to be removed. Mm-hmm. Um, the tree was uh, 35 years old. Uh, it's being replaced by uh, in excess of 40 trees that are part of the the new project. And so... But what does it have to do with well, this case? Because, <laughs> you know, and I'm I'm not here to articulate her position, <laughs> right? You can have her on the po- podcast if you'd like to do that. But she disagreed with the removal of that tree. Okay. Um, and... Uh, and that, you know, has formed, I, I guess, from her side of things, some basis of... Oh, so of she it. thinks it's because of that opposition to the removal of the tree that all of this is happening? Is that uh, where you're saying? I can't put words in her mouth in terms of <laughs> what... But what I can say is that's not accurate. I mean, okay. the reason why... It, I mean, it's pretty clear. The, I, I'm being re- genuine when I'm asking yeah, because yeah. I thought this actually centered around the removal of a tree. Well, and and... Again, I think you'll, from her perspective, that's what she's articulated. Okay. What I'm telling you is um, opposing the removal of a tree 
is not in violation of the community charter, is not grounds for <laughs> censure, and and nobody on council would censure someone because of that. I mean, we have differences of opinions on dozens of different topics, and 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 that doesn't equate censure. What what resu resulted in the censure was again a a third party. Uh, investi independent investigation report to council mm -hmm. that in relation to this project that on three separate occasions she had disclosed confidential information which is contrary to section 117 of the community charter uh, and council felt that that action was conduct unbecoming uh, and required a, a response and that's why the censure flowed yeah is it weird still going to work with this counselor who is suing the city? I, I mean, I, I think it's obviously an odd thing that you don't <laughs> often have uh, a, a member of city council suing their own city. There have been instances of it happening before. Yeah. Um, but I mean, as far as I'm concerned and, and the rest of council is concerned, um, you know, we're focused on doing what we need to do for people of Port Coquitlam. Um, something happened um, that was was unfortunate. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, there were consequences to those actions, um, and and council made its decision, and, and, and we move on. And so, you know, we met uh, yesterday and had a, you know, four or five hour meeting about our budget, and, um, you know, everyone's commenting and participating and, mm -hmm. you know, expressing their, their point of view. Um, and so, you know, I think it will be good once, uh, <laughs> you know, the lawsuit is, is concluded. Yeah. City is confident in its actions and, and that it did so, uh, in good faith and, and has a solid, uh, legal basis for, for doing that. That's been, I would say, confirmed and supported by the first judge's ruling with respect to dismissing the injunction. So, um, you know, really, is it an ideal situation? No, of course not. But I think it's, you know, it, it happened. There, there was a response uh, to it. There was some responsibility and consequence that flowed from it. Mm. Um, and we'll get the, uh, a judge's decision when the full matter goes to the court. Um, and then we'll carry on. But I mean, really, you know, besides you asking me about it right now, it's not something that people uh, ask me about uh, or yeah, talk I was about. Digging. <laughs> yeah, or ask I'm not about trying it. to repeat the same things that we talked no, about no, no. In the last episode. Yeah, right? no, of so course. I don't, hey, I, I, I don't uh, object at all. Um, but my point is, is that um, it's it's not the focus of of council or the the city yeah. you know we're we've got a lot on the plate we've got a lot of good things that we're doing and and that's the work that we're focused on another thing another controversy that came up and mike classen actually took great pride in telling me that i softballed you on this <laughs> we talked about you being a steel worker yep. last time and you said openly you're a steel worker you're proud to be one but then it came out this year that you're a lobbyist and you and I take the piss out of lobbyists all the time. And we take the piss out of self-righteous political comms people all the time. And then I have to find out in the Georgia Strait, of all places, that you yourself 
our lobbyist. <laughs> Can you tell me about your work with the United Steelworkers? I mean, that's a nice salary that you're collecting. I normally don't comment on, you know, money that people make, but that's out in public record now. So what do you do for them? And who uh, are you lobbying to? Okay. Um, so a couple of things I think that are important to uh, clarify or go through here. Um, and I'll just start by saying that if anyone ever, uh, any reporter ever chose to pick up the phone, ask me about it, they could have got <laughs> answers. Um, You're saying that they, the George Strait didn't actually contact you. Uh, no, I've had no contact from them. Okay. Um, I have been uh, a United uh, uh, steel worker for eight years. Mm -hmm. There's my membership card right there. Okay. Um, I've talked about with you why I'm so proud to be a, a steel worker. Mm -hmm. um, I am not currently working for the United Steel Workers, though I'm a member of the Steel Workers. Um, I joined the United Steel Workers in 2011. My work for the union has been uh, varied on a, a number of different uh, campaigns, um, things that the union does. Uh, I've never been a lobbyist. I've been a registered <laughs> lobbyist. I've never, you know, that's that, that's just incorrect. Um, I, I have been very involved and in, damn proud to have been involved in politics, mm -hmm. uh, in encouraging steel workers and training steel workers to be involved in politics because I think that more working people need to get involved in politics. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'll be really specific about things that I've done for them. Um, I have been an instructor and, and done training for uh, members of the union, which include forestry workers, miners, um, factory workers, um, uh, care aides, um, people who work for TELUS, mm -hmm. other telecommunication workers in, in explaining our system of governance, in explaining um, how government works, in uh, explaining how elections work, in explaining how to run for office. Um, the steelworkers put a huge focus on education uh, for their members, one mm -hmm. of the things that they're known for, because one of their goals is to increase uh, working class participation in politics. And so uh, that was part of the work that I, I did for them, yeah. uh, was equipping people with those skills so they can get involved. Um, some people may think that that's a bad, like a, a bad thing. I, I, I guess what I I'm confused know. is you said you're not employed by them. You're like, you're a member, fair. Yeah. So this salary that was being reported. Yeah, well, that's when, when I was, when I, when I, I, I was employed by them. Um, and up until, been, um, up until last year and have taken the leave of absence. Okay. Um, while I serve as mayor, um, and I fully expect at some point to, you know, return to, work for the United Steel Workers. Okay. Um, because to me, their work is absolutely essential to addressing a whole bunch of the issues that we're, we're talking about mm -hmm. in terms of corporate power. 
in terms of corporate influence in, in government decision-making. Um, one of the counterweights to that is uh, the labor movement and the participation of working people in elected politics. Mm -hmm. uh, and run, that includes running for office, volunteering, um, you know, all of those things. And so that's what I'm about. Um, you know, that, that's why, that, that's <laughs> why I got involved in, you know, in, in politics in, in the first place. Um, so you're it, not collecting two salaries because no. this was sort of the thing that was reported yeah. that Brad West, he is of yeah. the 1%. <laughs> right. No. Uh, and and, and you a, might be just with your mayor's salary. I don't know, but yeah, but I'll just, let me just make a comment on that as, yeah. as well. Um, <laughs> there, and I think there's, you know, specific reasons why, you know, I was targeted. Let's put it that way. But here's the reality. Um, across the whole uh, field of uh, elected officials, um, there are many, including mayors, uh, including um, city councilors and others. Uh, there's lots of people who have other sources of income. Sure. Some of them, other jobs, yeah. right? Um, and so, yeah, they want to take a shot at me for you know, <laughs> my, you know, being involved with steel workers, whatever, that's fine. But, you know, <laughs> we're, if, if that's truly objectionable to certain folks, um, I'll look forward to the expose on the, you know, the real estate agents who are also elected mm. officials, on the lawyers who are also elected officials, on the business owners who are also elected officials, mm. on the people who own uh, car dealerships, on the people who own, you know, fast food restaurants. I mean, there, there's, you know, and, yeah. and for me, I, I don't begrudge people doing that. You know, that's, they're allowed to do that. And if that's, you know, the background and perspective they but bring. But we have begrudged lobbyists. So I guess sure. the, the claim okay. here that I want no. to dispel. Okay. Yes. No. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> on the topic of the Georgia Strait, they published a letter from one Kevin Campbell in May. And apparently this was received by your desk as well. So he, apparently he sent it to you directly. Mm -hmm. And this letter calls upon you to stop criticizing China. It says you're being irresponsible and implies that you're enabling anti-Asian hate crimes. Now, a little digging finds out that this person who wrote this letter is an executive, or at least was at the time of the letter being released, for a Vancouver-based investment firm, Haywood Securities, that was explicitly named in the Panama Papers, the leaked documents about global money laundering. Now, that doesn't mean that they necessarily did anything wrong, but they were mentioned in the Panama Papers. You didn't say anything. You kind of let this all play out. You let the article come out. But since you're my bro, I stepped up publicly. And then Charlie Smith, the editor at the Georgia Strait, accused me of not drawing enough attention to issues around racism for some reason. Interesting. <laughs> Very white-splainy. But it was almost like a similar vein of white-splainy where you were being accused of racism for speaking up about the treatment of the Uyghurs, 
people in Hong Kong and people of Asian ancestry and people with connections to China coming to you privately about being harassed. The whole thing was so weird. I, I don't know why it was published. Did you actually receive this letter directly? Yeah, I, I did. And I received it, I want to say a month or so before it was published in the Georgia Street. Okay. And, uh, and I replied to... Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. I repl- What'd you say? I said... Um, did you know the Panama paper stuff? No, I didn't. I just, <laughs> you know, I, I get lots of different uh, letters and emails and, and I read them and yeah. I replied to them. So um, I replied to the, the individual and I said that I, I disagreed with his uh, assertions. Mm. Um, I explained sort of what you just did in terms of why I am speaking out, how I'm very specific about uh, this being about the actions of the government of China, not Chinese people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, you know, a huge part of my speaking out is because of the sense of solidarity I feel with uh, Chinese Canadians and, and Uyghurs and Hong Kongers. And, and I said, I would be pleased to discuss this further with you gave uh, him my phone number and, hmm. and asked for his. And, and I, I never did hear back, but, uh, uh, but then about in a month after that, um, the letter was then uh, printed or published in the, in the Georgia Strait. He accused you of making a comment or a joke about a young kid driving a Lambo or a Porsche or something, which he says... And, and I read the actual tweet that he was sourcing. Yeah. So it has not, it didn't say anything about race, but he says that's a hint, hint, nudge, nudge about no, it's, it's Asian a, people. It's a statement about class and the inequity that exists within Metro Vancouver, uh, an area that has become the supercar capital of North America. <laughs> that was the point I was making at a time when people are working harder than they ever have are struggling to make ends meet mm-hmm. there's also obscene wealth in this region mm-hmm. and and that's something that needs to be discussed and you know the fact that i was minding my own business uh driving uh with my son um to stanley park mm-hmm. And had a uh, Lamborghini come flying up the side of me <laughs> with, a, a, with an N on it. With an yes. N on it and cut me off. To me, it was, I, I just, I thought to myself, you know, this is, I think, that sort of stuff and its connection to, like I just said, supercar capital of North America. Yeah. Um, it's emblematic of the inequities uh, in our region. Um, that we need to to face head on. If we're going to have a future in this region, if people are satisfied with Metro Vancouver becoming a playground for the wealthy and push working in middle-class people further and further and further east, mm-hmm. then, you know, carry on. Because that has largely been the path that we're on. Yeah. Um, if not, we need to do some things differently. And, and so, and the, you know, that's not a new position or belief for me. That's something I articulate. You know, it, it, uh, let's be really clear. I mean, <laughs> this individual, and I didn't respond to it because 
I don't reply to every jackass. We got your muscle right here. Yeah, I was second, but like, swinging. You know, I, it's, it's not my not my job to respond to every no that's stupid fair. comment that yeah. you know someone makes. Um, and I don't think for a second that that individual probably even actually believes what they wrote. I think they were put up to it. Well, where they were put up to it, or you know, clearly given the line of work the individual is in, um, you know, there are people who, uh, who are probably threatened by the positions that I take, uh, who probably see that I have some success in galvanizing, uh, public opinion Mm -hmm. and are articulating frustrations that I think a lot of people in our region are, are feeling, um, and so, you know, one of the ways to try and chop that down is to, you know, go to this sort of baseless accusation like uh, like that letter contained. Yeah. Um, because it, anyone who knows my track record in that regard would know there's absolutely no truth or substance to that. I mean, again, I'll come back to this. Um, it, you know, and, and I remember there were a couple of, Twitter commentators who, you know, uh, ob- objected to my uh, participation in, at the the UBCM demonstration. Um, it I, wasn't that you did; it's how you did it, Brad. Right. So, <laughs> and 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 they tried to, and in their critique, they try and like raise the spec. By the way, all white people, but they tried to raise the spec <laughs> the the specter of oh, this is some like darker mm. motivation. Yeah, and it's and, and my simple response is I didn't see any of them. Many, by the way, who are the self-professed woke progressive crowd. Mm-hmm. I didn't see any of them coming and standing with the Uyghur community, with Hong Kongers. <laughs> with Chinese Canadians who are scared out of their wits about what their future might hold. Yeah. You know, like it's just, it's just, I kind of just think it's laughable that they're going to, they're not getting off their ass to do anything and they'll just sort of pass judgment and, oh, well, you're doing, you know, he's doing that because, of this or the other thing. I mean, mm-hmm. where, where are you? Self-promotion. Where, and Where are you at? What are you doing? Yeah. You know? So. I'm not sure if this is going to make sense, but bringing together a lot of these things that we're talking about, I feel like there's a lot of groups that have emerged in Metro Vancouver and some will advocate for rental housing and some will advocate for safety in neighborhoods. And then when you look deeper into those groups, they have these weird tentacles that connect to political parties or to real estate specifically or to high finance. There was a group that talks all about neighborhood safety and it was connected somehow to these luxury supercars that we just discussed. And it's one of those things that when you look at it, it kind of makes you go like, hmm, okay, is there like a unifying agenda behind all of this stuff? And I asked Andrea Wu, reporter at the Globe and Mail, about one particular group 
that's particularly active here in Vancouver. And I understand that, you know, it's hard to responsibly comment on them because all you're doing is seeing dots and you're trying to connect them and trying to understand why. I mean, maybe it is by coincidence that people in real estate and high finance and political parties just volunteer more. (laughs) What are you seeing in terms of AstroTurf groups? Because this is something that we've kind of discussed off mic a lot. And we look at even groups that produce media content. And it's kind of an interesting world to navigate because you think, you know, this one group is about safety in, in the neighborhood without recognizing like, oh, maybe there's other interests involved with it. Yeah, I think, you know, I guess I take the view that I'm all for people having opinions mm-hmm. and points of view and articulating them and, and you know, getting into the, you know, into the ring, so to speak, and and saying, hey, I think we should be doing this or, hey, I think we should be doing that. Like, no issue there, right? I think the the concern that people have is when you don't know, you know, who's actually pulling the strings, mm. you know? And, and so, you know, if uh, the development industry wants to, you know, articulate a, a point of view, have at her, you know, if, if other people want to articulate a point of view, that's fine. Um, but it's sort of this kind of self-indictment that it's like, well, we don't think that we, our <laughs> reputation is, 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 is in, in the shitter so much, we better like create this like entity with this, you know, nice sounding name as a vehicle to which disguise the fact that it it's our views that we're putting forward. Yeah. Like you believe things, just say them, you know? So I, for me, it's, you know, my kind of objection is the transparency mm-hmm. of it, you know? Um, and, and so I don't get on a kind of high horse and say that other people aren't allowed to have perspectives or different opinions. I love that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love the cut and thrust of discussion and, and debate and all of that. Um, it, it's when you know you're trying to mislead people right. around you know who you are. That that to me is the the. Are we seeing a lot more of this because of campaign finance reform, where maybe groups that would have donated just directly to parties now they're kind of making their own media outlets in a sense, or they're making these community groups. Yeah. I think that you're probably right on that. You know, I guess someone, you could say like the money has, the money has gone somewhere. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so if it's not going to political parties, it's going to, um, it's going to other entities. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and I guess I think too, maybe a bit of a reflection, you know, you bring up the ability to kind of, create your own um, media outlet or something like it's, I guess that's a bit of a reflection on just where we're at in terms of the ease in which that type of stuff is available, Mm -hmm. you know, like through social media and stuff like it, you know, a few clicks of the mouse and you can, you know, have a, a Facebook page that, you know, purports to be like, 
you know, some sort of accredited media right. outlet, right? Yeah. And so... Um, and people have made a lot of money from it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it's, you know, probably a combination of all of those things. But, I mean, it, it, it definitely seems like you've got more groups active, which, again, I don't object to. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, I think, more transparency around, okay... Um, who's, you know, who's behind the the curtain? Yeah, you know, was whose interests are actually being served by this? So let's get crazy with this then. Uh oh. Okay. You rub a certain type of urbanist <laughs> the wrong way, and it always kind of baffles me because you stop rent evictions. You're clearly not anti-development. I mean, you're revitalizing Poco's entire downtown, which is a lot of development money. The jury's still out in terms of uh, how much you'll go to bat for a developer with regard to a cedar tree. We'll leave it at that. But I think it's fair to say that you're not like an anti-development mayor. I think that's fair to say. And yet you have this group of urbanists, and they might just be a small clique, who don't like you. What's your theory in terms of why? Hmm. And does it relate to the previous question that I just gave you? Right. Um, It's it's not something that I've spent a a lot of gray matter on uh, (laughs) thinking about. Um, I think they spend way more time thinking and talking about me than I them. Um, you know, I, I, I think that um, they, they, you know, particularly, I noticed they, they particularly didn't like when I said that uh, identify as a populist. I noticed that was like, that really yeah, was. Yeah, that's such a weird one for me. I don't know why people hate that word. I guess it's just been co-opted by yeah. Trump, but yeah, people don't know what that, Maybe they didn't like the the stopping of rent evictions. I mean, maybe that was part of you know your your previous question mm. about who's the you know who is the 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 power behind the throne uh, on some of these groups. Um, yeah, it, it's it you know I think that to me, without being, I don't want to be uncharitable, but. Um, I see the comments that are expressed by people who identify themselves as urbanists, which I just think is a strange thing to begin with. I'm I'm always suspicious of people who try and boil down their identity to something, an ism. Yeah. Okay, that's just me. I think people are more complicated and complex than... I am this. This is the, you know, sort of being an urbanist defines my very being. But, you know, that's their choice to make. Yeah. But it's the best when they actually live in a single family home and have a car and stuff. (laughs) But, okay. So, anyways, I I won't take that away from them. But, okay. So, there's no doubt that I've articulated a frustration that many on the uh, who identify uh, on the progressive side of the political spectrum, I think are uh, tone deaf and detached from the reality of of working people. Yeah. Um, you know, and th- there's so many w- 
areas we could delve into this. But when I, you know, for instance, on mobility pricing. So urbanists love mobility yeah. pricing. Okay. Um, I think it's stupid. Well, <laughs> I, I do too. The roads are paid for. Why do you, you have know, to pay for more of them? Or why do you have to pay for using them? That's my question. When I have articulated my concerns about uh, the inequity of mobility pricing, because I come from and represent an area where people are reliant upon their vehicle mm -hmm. to get to work, uh, to live their life, to get their kids to different places, you know, the, oh, that's, you know, that's just cheap populism. And, uh, and, and it, no, it's not, it's, it's reality, yeah. you know? And so I, I just, my view is the people, a lot of the opinions expressed by these so-called urbanists are completely detached from the reality of how, um, you know, thousands of people in our region live. Um, and, and so, you know, it's, they object to that. Um, but to me, there's a serious equity issue uh, when you say we're going to introduce a, a, a pricing scheme that says if you are wealthy enough to be able to live in downtown Vancouver and work in downtown Vancouver, you're off the hook. If you live in Port Coquitlam, mm -hmm. Pitt Meadows, Maple Ridge, Langley, Surrey, Abbotsford, and e even further out, as an increasing number of people do, um, we're going to ding you. Yeah. You're the, you're, the behavior that you're engaged in needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. We need to, you know, you, you really need to get out of your car and, you know, like... It's again, it's detached from reality because people who live in these areas aren't going for Sunday drives. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like, you know, I actually, you know, when I was young and sometimes we'd, no, I we'd, go, we'd go with our gram, grandma and grandpa. Yeah. This, this is not, this is, yeah. you know, it's, it's out of necessity. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I'm put off by the, the, the sort of smug kind of moral superiority mm. uh, of people who, you know, articulate these ideas in, in, in certain ways. And, and the one that rubs me wrong the most is, and I hear this all the time, it's good policy, just bad politics. Okay? <laughs> so... Who gets to decide what's good policy? Yeah. You, you know, like, is it, you know, I just, this whole, like, I've been thinking about this a lot because I, I hear this incessantly on on mobility pricing and a, a few other things. I feel like right? when someone says that, what it means is, I can't sell this idea to it's the like, public. Yeah, it's like, I've... Like, I'm right, yeah, but I, I just can't articulate I, it to I, the public properly. Someone died and made me the person who gets <laughs> to decide what is good policy or not. And so I've decided it's good policy. Well, is it good policy for the, you know, the, the family that lives in, in Habitsford mm -hmm. uh, because that's what they can afford? And, uh, you know, the parents work in, in Burnaby you know, or Coquitlam, mm -hmm. you know, who are, are going to, you know, by some accounts, you know, depending on what 
type of mobility pricing were to be implemented, you know, could be paying of upwards of $3,000 a, a year. Um, like, that, someone thinks that's good policy. So, good policy, it depends on your perspective. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it, it, there's not, you know, in my opinion, there, there's, you don't get to just decide for everyone else what good policy is. I get it. You like it. You think it makes sense. That's fine. But I just think there's a certain uh, smugness around this idea that I've anointed this as good policy. It's uh, yeah, it's not going to happen because it's bad politics. And, and that to me, it, it's insulting mm-hmm. to those of us who oppo- I don't op- oppose mobility pricing because I think it's bad politics. Mm-hmm. I oppose it because I think it's bad policy. I think it is unfair. I think that it. Uh, doubles down on the region on the inequity that already exists in our region and again if you want to hollow out uh you know sort of our major urban centers and and have them as a a playground for the wealthy you know to me that's this is another type of policy that would double down on on uh on that outcome yeah i would agree with you and i think sometimes it's almost dressed up with this phrase evidence-based policy or rational evidence-based policy. And, you know, that sounds good when you hear it. But then you realize, even when you talk about that, and if you're trying to maximize utility, what is the utility? (laughs) And are we talking about real people in their life? Or are we just trying to make everything equally shitty for everyone (laughs) in in the pursuit of a bigger goal? So, And this is the type of stuff that gets you called a populist, by the way, right? Yeah, well, that's and that's, that's the crazy part is, you know, they think that they're seeing this world in a very rational way, forgetting that it's not a rational world. You know, like you said, because urban centers are hollowed out and it's expensive to live there, even though it's not rational for people to live in suburbs and then work in the urban centers, they have to, right? They yeah. don't have much choice, yeah. right? It's not rational. It's just the way it is, unfortunately, because of bad policy or history or whatever. Yep. And so the being able to not take that into account and just saying, well, this is evidence-based policy <laughs> uh, really annoys me. But, and, and the, you know, the, pol- the populist thing annoys me too, because half the people who use that word, and that's being generous, are just relating it to Trump. Correct. And right? Which is just a... It, Populism you know. basically just means that the people in charge... You think that the people in charge are are not reflective of the working people, the regular people, and those regular the people. majority. Yeah. And those regular people are standing up and telling the elites, the people in charge, hey, you don't understand what our issues are. Right. That's effectively populist. Correct. <laughs> and, and, and Trump hijacked it. You know, he, he, for sure. He, it was a magic trick yep. that he made people believe that he was the populist. When he was just a con man. That's right. And and so, like, I, I see parallels, right, with the, the same type of attitude and thinking that we were just talking about with why the Democratic Party continues to struggle. Why, you know, it, it's uh, Thursday, it's two days after the election, and, and we still, you know, we kind of think we know who's going to win, but we're not entirely sure. <laughs> yeah. It, it should have been a blowout. Mm-hmm. The Democratic Party, and I say this of the political left around the world, 
um, has created and bears responsibility for creating the conditions to allow for Trump-like faux populism to be successful. Mm-hmm. You know, decades of of ignoring the concerns of of working people um, uh, across every cultural group and mm-hmm. ethnicity and race, bad trade deals. You know, again, right back to our, our earlier conversation. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, when you continually send the message that you're not really interested or don't care about the concerns of working people, don't be surprised when they start voting for someone else. Yeah. Even if that person is incredibly objectionable on a number of fronts. Yeah. No, absolutely. How much time you got? I know. Um, I got another fifteen minutes. Or so. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot here that um, that I had to skip. Sorry. Yeah, I've I've been wanting to ask you actually about this homelessness. Yes, I'm in your neighborhood all the time. I haven't seen any tent cities or encampments. They might be there. I don't. I don't actually know. Mm-hmm. But I've definitely seen homeless people in Port Coquitlam. Yep. What are you doing specifically to address the homelessness crisis in Metro Vancouver, specifically to your jurisdiction in Poco? Sure. Um, so there's a, a number of things. First, I would say, and it, stopping rent evictions is uh, on you know, sort of the front end of stopping people from becoming homeless. Because, That's just populism. <laughs> because I, I, I think it's worth briefly describing this because um, it's it's part of, I think, the solution. When someone becomes homeless, you know, there's been a failures along the way, right? I, I think the more that we can intervene early to stop that, the better. Mm-hmm. So, in the case of this renovation in Port Coquitlam that we stopped, you know, you had a um, hundred people um, who are low-income people, um, including seniors, including veterans, people on disability, um, single parents, uh, new immigrants, who were facing the prospect of having their rents double or triple Hmm. in some instances Uh, under the guise of having to perform renovations to uh, an exceptionally well-maintained apartment building in Port Coquitlam because a new owner purchased it and thought, here's some low-hanging fruit and an opportunity to do a quick Mm -hmm. flip. And I'm talking about things as ridiculous as saying, I have to evict you because I need to put in a new uh, sliding glass door on your balcony. Oh, hmm. you don't have a balcony. <laughs> Oops. What? Uh, okay, but uh, sorry, you need new carpet or a new appliances. And, and, wow. And, and, you know, I'm not saying every, you know, not don't want to paint too broad of a brush, but there's some bad actors who do this type of thing and For take sure. advantage of people. Yeah. And 
for many, many of those hundred residents of our community who, some of them who had lived there for 20 plus years, mm-hmm. um, where were they going to go? Yeah. You know, and so stopping that, I mean, I, I drive, drive, not ride my bike, sorry, drive past that building. <laughs> Such a populist. Every oh day. God. I know. <laughs> um, and I see people who have a roof over their head because of what we did. Um, and by the way, the owner of the property still making lots of money. People still paying lots of rent, but it, it wasn't, you know, as exorbitant as perhaps they had hoped. So that's, that's one thing that is important action. Um, the city does have some tools at, at its uh, disposal to try and uh, create uh, affordable uh, non-market, below-market housing. And and we have, for a city our size, I think this is remarkable. We have, right now, about 500 units of below-market. So, uh, like, I'm talking truly affordable, like some people paying, you know, 400 bucks a, a month, you know, depending on the size of the unit. Some people you know, for a three bedroom unit, maybe paying a thousand bucks a month. Whoa. Um, that is pretty good. Below, truly below market, affordable housing, 500 units being built in the city at three separate locations <laughs> right now. One of which uh, is, is, and this is un- unique, um, specifically uh, has the leases in, in uh, the name of women. <laughs> because too often, uh, a woman's name is not on the lease, and that can create uh, issues uh, when they're trying to uh, flee uh, domestic abuse and, right. and various things. And so, um, a, a wonderful project for for women and families. Um, another one for for seniors, and another um, aimed at uh, really working parents and working families. So, you know. We're coming to the table doing our part, doing everything that we can. Are can. these city projects only, or are there provinces involved? Uh, it, yeah, it's all partnerships. Okay, and, and yeah. you know that's been one of the lessons I've learned. You know, pretty quickly is for a city our size, you can't do it on your own. Sure, you, you need to have the, the partnership. So you know, but it, it has it takes the the will to do it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't just happen by magic. You have to say. This is a priority. We're going to focus on it. We're going to follow through and and get it done. And it's just kind of a grind. And we've you know we've been there grinding away, and, and now we're at the point where we've got these five hundred units. Um, and, and so those types of things I think are are really important because too many of the people who live in those type uh, who you know will live in those units, you know, might otherwise be. One paycheck away, one car accident away, one accident at work away, mm. one family tragedy away, um, with not being able to afford rent um, yeah. at market rates. And then where did they go? And, and so, you know, we've had a real focus on trying to uh, help people um, sort of in in that stage of life or with those challenges. Um, and then, you know, specifically for those who who are. Homeless, you know, from the municipal end, we've been really successful at connecting them to um, 
service providers, um, working with uh, BC Housing and the provincial government, um, you know, to get people housed. Um, and How big is the homeless population in, in Port Coquitlam? Um, so it, it's ebbed and flowed, obviously, but um, right now it's it's actually quite low. Okay. And so, you know, we're talking a, around a dozen people. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, in Port Coquitlam. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we work to try and um, connect those people with services. Um, some of them say they don't want to go into uh, housing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some obviously have uh, issues with addictions and mental health challenges. Um, and, you know, we can't talk about this stuff without acknowledging, particularly because of where we are in Metro Vancouver, our belief of the importance of that a facility like Riverview could and should play in addressing the challenges that we have in the province with mm-hmm. with with these issues. Um, and so um, Riverview is in Coquitlam, not in Port Coquitlam, but it's very close on the border. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have articulated and advocated strongly that we believe that um, there needs to be a a modern day reinvigoration of of mental health and addictions supports for people on the Riverview lands, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think by any measure, you can say that the closure of Riverview was an abject failure. Of course, yeah, uh, and it's time that we said that plainly and work towards getting a modern day version of it uh, on that site and, and helping people. Really quickly, because I have one more question after this, but really quickly, the mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, comes out. He says he's gobsmacked by receiving only $60 million from the BC government in COVID relief because he asked for 60 million dollars you come out you're you're throwing shade at him you you thank the bc government for your share i think you said 5.6 million correct and and you cite your commitment to a responsible approach you and i have spoken in the past how comparing vancouver to port coquitlam isn't apples to apples but are you suggesting that other municipalities like the city of Vancouver are not living up to their financial responsibilities? Because a lot of people saw that comment as you throwing shade. Well, what I'll say is that the reason why I made that comment is because <laughs> the mayor of Vancouver was advocating for taking away funding from my city and, and oh, other okay. cities. So, you know, I I don't make it a habit to you know, monitor what every other mayor says and then <laughs> respond to it. But, you know, he came out in a, in a very forceful way, yeah. as you've just said, and, you know, expressed his view that the province should have taken money, more money away from medium and small-sized municipalities and given it to uh, the city of Vancouver. Um, that necessitated a response from for me, the mayor of a of a, a medium sized city, mm-hmm. um, and so that was the reason why 
I, I made the comment, if you know someone's going to be out there trying to create a lot of pressure on the, the provincial government to reverse its decision, and that decision would have negative ramifications on your city, I, I think it's your responsibility to speak up and say, well, that's your opinion. You're entitled to it. Here's another opinion. Yeah. They, I think, hit the mark pretty well on this. You know, is there a perfect way to distribute the monies? Probably not. But what they said was, we're going to have a, 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 we recognize that all municipalities have experienced challenges. So we'll have a base amount that municipalities get and then a tiered support based on your population. Mm-hmm. That to me makes sense. Um, and my secondary comment um, is reflective of my belief that each municipality has a responsibility to manage its own budget, uh, to make financial decisions that are responsible. And I don't think it's a, a, appropriate to be hanging all of that responsibility on a, another level of government. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, we've had to do a, a number of things in our city uh, and have made a number of, you know, tough choices to be able to weather this storm, same way families are having to do. Uh, and so my point was just that nobody should be exempt from that process. It doesn't, you know, the fact that there's some money that is coming from a senior level of government um you know, it's still taxpayer money, mm-hmm. uh, and you know it doesn't absolve us of whatever challenges we we might be having. Um, you know, and that's a, a a message as much from my own community. You know, I, I think a lot of people sometimes perceive that when I'm when I'm when I am tweeting or when I say something that I'm speaking to some other audience. Mm. Um, my audience, first and foremost, is the people who I work for, the people right. of Port Coquitlam. And so, um, you know, I have spoken a lot about the choices we've made in our city and the things that we've done to be uh, fiscally responsible. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to stop talking about that because someone says, oh, well, oh, well, Vancouver should do that or something like that's Vancouver's problem. You know, right. they get the, that's for them to sort out. Um, in, in Poco, we're doing certain things. We're making um, what we think are the right choices. Um, and that's our responsibility. Brad, this has been a weird year. COVID-19 doesn't mean that all the problems are exclusive to COVID-19. All the problems that we had before COVID-19 are still issues this year. And just to bring it full circle in terms of you vanishing on me, <laughs> as I mentioned at the start. Uh, yeah, You know what? Yeah, please. I don't think that is what it was. I think I've stayed here and you just rocketed, my man. So it, it, it only appeared <laughs> it, it, because... Mulamir was up in the stratosphere. Oh no! That you that's, now, that's now you're blown smoke. No, no, I, now I, you're blown Hey, smoke. I think that's part of what it was. You've had a really good year. That that's kind for you to say. What I was going to say is, listen, I know you've actually had a lot on your plate. I know you. I know you've had some family stuff as well. It has been a challenging year, but I think that the things that you talk about outside of the management of Port Coquitlam are still 
very much important for the greater population. Obviously, what you're doing in Poco is amazing. And I'm not going to bug you about running for higher office. I actually hope that you continue to be that voice for change because I think you have affected change. And I think there is always going to be resistance to that. People are going to push back and think that the word populist is an insult. And it's because you are an effective force for good. So as we close it out for a third time, by the way, don't leave me for 11 months. Like we should do this every six months <laughs> minimum. Like you're just, I wanted to do this in the summer and you just have to get on the hook. So, you know, I, there's only one episode 100. I can't offer you that every time. But as we sort of close this out, the third episode, what is your call to action? What do you want people to know? I just want to say to to folks that now's the time to be paying attention. I think that um, there's so much going on in the world. Um, you know, there's, I mean, just COVID and, you know, the, you know, the circus uh, down south, like there's, there are so many distractions, I guess, is, is what I'm saying. And, you know, I've, I've just kind of noticed in my own conversations with people, and maybe it's sort of in line with what your sort of thought was around, uh, you know, me pulling, pulling inward or pulling <laughs> Disappearing, away. Disappearing, vanishing. Um, um, <laughs> the cynic in me is like, no, we got to be vigilant and stay on top of stuff because this is when people will try shit. This yeah. is when the, you know, the shadowy forces out there will uh, will make their move because people have a lot on their plate and and have a lot to be distracted by, um, you know. But I, I just think, you know, it's it's so easy to take a pass on paying attention to. You know politics, and 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 I understand, you know, mm. why people just kind of think, uh, you know, to hell with it. Um, but I firmly believe that the only way we're going to get uh, change, and I do think we need change on a number of fronts, is the involvement, participation of of regular people um, in this process in our democracy. It's too important to just allow those with, uh, you know, fancy titles or pedigrees or whatever to be the decision makers. Um, You know, the people who raise kids, the people who swing a hammer for a living, you know, the, the people who we've learned, you know, throughout the COVID 19 pandemic are, you know, truly essential, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that awakening, I think, I hope is not lost. You know, we, we've really, you know, I, I get in trouble on when I take a shot at lawyers, so I won't, but like, you know, <laughs> um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, especially early on, it wasn't like, you know, oh my God, are we going to have enough lawyers? <laughs> it was... You know, the people who work at the grocery store. Yeah. The people who transport our goods. Um, the people who take care of us. Mm-hmm. You know, um, those, you know, frontline workers, those essential workers, those healthcare workers, you know. I believe in my core that those are the people who make this country 
the amazing place it is. And I think we live in an amazing country. And, you know, we have our challenges, we have our sins, um, but we're very fortunate in many ways. And I think it's been built by those people who we have come out at 7 p.m. to cheer on. And we still do that cheer mm-hmm. in my neighborhood, by the way. And so my message to to those people is that we need you to be involved in this process. We need you involved in politics. We need mm-hmm. you running for politics. We need you being represented. And, you know, I think that's the way we get change in our country. Yeah. And so that's my that's my message. I love that's that. That's my wisdom. I love that. And and I think it's on point. And that's what we need more of. We need you, people like you, changing the culture, affecting the culture. When I say changing the culture, I don't just mean being a proponent for the money laundering inquiry. I mean getting people charged up, getting people involved. And that's a big part of it. So I appreciate that. Brad, we did it. We did it. Episode 30, episode 60, episode 100. You've been a big part of this podcast and a big part of my journey. There's no other past guest that I wanted to celebrate this milestone with and chop it up with a good bro down. I don't care what the haters say. I am ride or die West. I'm looking forward to 2021. So uh, thank you. And I look forward to the next time. And don't make me wait so long. I promise. Cheers, Mo. Thank you. People, that's it. 100 episodes and counting. I will be back. Nitu Garcha is on deck for episode 101. I promise it will probably be amazing. It will be amazing. Hit the subscribe button. Drop me a review. Follow me on Twitter at VanColor. Tell your friends. Tell your mom. I wouldn't have made it this far without you listening. That's the God's honest truth. They put me on the radio. They put me in print because of you. They don't even want to listen to this podcast, but they got to listen to this podcast because you're talking about it. You're putting it out there. I'm trying to get the guests that you want to hear from, guests that will give you something that they won't give anywhere else. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you, Metro Vancouver. It is an honor. And thank you to our guest today, the man. He is here. He is the mayor of Port Coquitlam. He is Mayor Brad West. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can fucking be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>